Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts evermore to know Jesus, to follow him day by day, all according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we began this series, God's Church for a Time Such as This. And that series, the message actually began talking about the darkness and the hatred that there is against Christianity, and it has grown to great, great heights in our current day and age. But the message really wasn't one about doubt or fear or even anger. Actually, the message was really very straightforward. It is this. You and I, you and I are called this day to be God's church for a time such as this. Right here, everybody sitting right here. We are called to be God's church for a time such as this. That's always been the clarion call that you and I are the called out ones, and we are called from death to life. We are called out from Satan's kingdom to the kingdom of God. We are brought from death to life. We are children of the light. We are called from an impure living to a holy life. And most of all, we are called through Jesus Christ and his gospel. Amen? So that's the promise. We are called through Jesus Christ and his gospel. And the promise is made secure because of his death and resurrection. Hence, this picture is the thematic picture for the whole series. Both his death, as you can see the crosses, and his resurrection. And the promises that he has given us rest not in our strength or our our ability, but in his strength and his ability. And the church that he founded is not just Joy Church, but it's the church universal. So therefore, you and I, as the called out ones, are to stand together with other churches, other called out ones, who stand for his word, who stand that Christ is the only way of salvation, who stand firm in the gospel and will not change it whatsoever. That's what we covered last week. There was a lot. But there's a sense in all of this from that song, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. But for me, as I have grown, as the Holy Spirit has moved me, I would actually add some different words to that particular song. I have decided to follow Jesus, no holding back, no holding back. You see, as your faith grows, as the reality, not just this intellectual idea of who Jesus is, but the intellect, the soul, the whole being, when you understand and are taken by the gospel, you're taken by Jesus. You grow alive, you grow deep, and you grow bold. 
And as you get to be our age, right? And I know I'm one of the younger ones here. Yeah. I'm going to hear that for a long time, I know. But we have fewer years ahead of us than behind us, right? So, are we going to wait until the last year of our life, the last month of our life, maybe the last week of our life, and then say, now I'm going to pour it on? You know, we don't know when that last day will be, right? I've decided follow Jesus. No holding back. No holding back. That should be part of the song. So for me, you know, if you were here last week, Lutheran doctrine with a fire of a Baptist, right? And there are times the Holy Spirit just like, it, it, th- this is how it feels. It feels like there's, an, there's a, a pressure inside my chest moving outwards. I don't feel that all the time. I don't chase after that feeling, but sometimes it's there. And I bet there are times maybe in your life where you've experienced the Holy Spirit at work in your life, and you've experienced God, God, and it's kind of like a mountaintop experience, isn't it? And it's wonderful to be on top of the mountain. But we don't live there, do we? We live more in the valley, don't we? Kind of the muck and mire of life. You see, when you've had a mountaintop experience and you're in the valley, you look up and say, why aren't I on top of the mountain? And you you yearn, yearn for it. But the work, the ministry takes place here. All of the work that we do for Jesus Christ and the gospel takes place here. And so the question is, how do you keep that alive? Because it's really easy to be inspired and to be enthralled and to have zeal when you're on top of the mountain, but how do you keep that alive? How does the body of Christ, the church of God, which are the called out ones, that's you, that's me, how do we keep that alive? And so today and next week, we're really going to take a look at the function of the church, how that is kept alive. Some things that we take for granted nowadays. And we're going to be spending time in Acts. And actually, we're going to be spending today and next Sunday on one verse. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Four things in there, teaching, fellowship, breaking of the bread, and prayers. This is what the early church did. And it not only kept them alive, it fed them. It gave them a passion and a zeal. So today we're going to take a look at the first two, which is teaching and fellowship. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So devotion... Devotion is a word that we don't use too much anymore. I suppose mostly it would be used for like a daily devotional, right? 
And for those people who like to get up at the crack of dawn, and you know not me, I got my coffee cup, but there's that serene time, that peaceful time, devotion. For other people, it's at night, and for other people, it's well, you, when you remember it. But there's often we think of devotion as a just a calm, serene thing. But is that what the meaning of the word is in this particular context? And I think you might be a little bit surprised. The amplified version of this verse says, they were continually and faithfully devoting themselves to the instruction of the apostles. So it has this sense of ongoing, continually, continually being faithful. Now, the King James Version uses this word steadfast, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And I like that word steadfast. It, I think steadfast really gets to the heart of it. It says unwavering, unfaltering, unswerving, resolute, firm. They had an unwavering, unfaltering, unswerving, resolute, and firm hunger, desire, and thirst for the apostles' teaching. That's the depth and breadth that we're talking about here in their devotion to the teaching. Could you even say zeal in this regard? And I think you could. They were compelled. It was an active sense of of learning, of soaking it in. You know, when something really compels you, you kind of lean into it, right? And this is a far, far cry from most churches in the Western culture. Most churches in the Western culture, well, you got a comfortable chair, you sit back. A lot of churches will have a coffee bar and you sip your coffee and it's like, okay, I hope you inspire me, pastor. I hope you entertain me this morning, right? There's a sense of leaning back, but no, 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 no. This church, the early church, they were leaning into, desiring, hungering, for what was being taught. And so the question is, what did the apostles teach? Well, this is what they taught. The main teaching of the apostles was about Jesus and salvation through him alone. And dare I say it, they taught theology. Theology simply means the study of God, who God is, and our relationship to him and him to us. That's what theology. And they specifically spoke about who is the Christ. We covered this last week, remember? Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. They taught why Jesus came. They taught why he had to die. They spoke of his resurrection, of his love, of his grace and mercy, and they also spoke about sin. They taught about his ascension and his second coming, and the focus was about Jesus. And you know what? The people were hungry for just that, that alone. And the apostles knew 
that that was what they were supposed to teach. They were supposed to teach about Jesus again and again and again and the fullness of who God is. They were not to teach their own opinions. They were not to teach philosophy. They weren't to put together a sermon that says the 10 best tips to have a healthy relationship and win friends. You know, which is what you might see in some sermons nowadays. They taught about Jesus. And they were preaching the word of God. Just as Jesus had taught them. From our gospel reading today. It's very rich, by the way. I would encourage you to go back and reread the gospel reading. But John chapter 17, verse 8 For I have given them your words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Also, as part of the Great Commission, Jesus said to teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So they not only spoke from the testimony of being with Jesus and exactly what he taught them, what else did they teach? They taught from the Old Testament. They didn't simply think that the Old Testament was a book that had to be forgotten. You have to remember, who were the ones coming to Christ? Jews. Many Jews were coming to Christ. And they had what we now refer to as the Old Testament. Everybody recognized that as the Word of God. And so they taught from the Word of God again and again. If you read, if you read the New Testament, there's 855 Old Testament references in there. Let me give you one. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Okay, so what book of the Old Testament is that from? Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. If you go through the New Testament, I'm just going to give you a sampling. In Matthew, there are 96 references. Mark, 34. Luke, 58. John, 40. Acts, 57. Romans, 74. Hebrews, 86. And Revelation, 249. Why did they use so many Old Testament references? Because it's the word of God. And there's a unity in it. And the Old Testament points to Jesus again and again and again. And so the apostles were teaching just as Jesus had taught them. Do you remember after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus? Two disciples walking along, and, you know, they really didn't understand what had happened. And after listening to them for a while, Jesus chides them. He rebukes them slightly. And he says, 
O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory and beginning with Moses and the prophets he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself he also taught them what it meant to be a follower of his, what it meant to be a disciple. And it really takes the full word of God to do that. There's a quote by J.I. Packer that I really like. It takes the whole Bible to make a whole Christian. See, one of the problems we have in the Western church nowadays is that the whole counsel of God is not taught or it is watered down so much that it has almost become meaningless. And thus, people are weak in their faith. And if you use the words like theology or doctrine, they go, oh, as if those are bad words. But this is not just an issue today. It was an issue back then as well. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, For, through, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God, You need milk, not solid food. Look, there is a fear, whether it's spoken or not. There is a fear that preaching the fullness of God's word, preaching theology and doctrine will scare people off. But look at the great teachers of history. The great preachers of history preached theology. They taught doctrine. And people flock to them. Luther, if you read any of the sermons from Luther, wow, they are jam-packed. I've even got a devotional, right? Luther day by day. And it's, it's not um, chicken soup for the soul. It's, you know, right? It, it, it's, it's theology. It's, it's what does the Word of God say? And then uh, uh, a part of his sermon about that. And you know what it does for me? It has me stand up straight. It strengthens me on the inside. So the great preachers, Luther did this. You take a look at Jonathan Edwards. You could go to uh, Charles Spurgeon. And more recently, I just want to mention one guy. One guy. (laughs) Some guy. Um, A a very well-known pastor, preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Has anybody heard of him? Martin Lloyd-Jones. He lived from 1899 to 1981. You know, he was going to be a doctor, and by the age of 22 or 23, he'd already received his MD, and by the age of 25, he'd gotten more qualifications. One smart dude. But he was a lukewarm Christian at best. Yet through the power of the Holy Spirit, God grabbed him 
and he was given a ministry to preach. That's what he was to do. He was to preach, and preach he did for 40 years. And 30 of those years were at Westminster Chapel in London. So according to an article I read, it said this. In 1947, the Sunday morning attendance was about 1,500. And Sunday evening attendance was 2,000. And people were drawn to him because of the clarity and the power and doctrinal depth of his preaching. He wore a somber black, what they call Geneva robe. He used no jokes. He had no gimmicks. And he held his audience simply by the sheer weight, the intensity of his vision, and the truth of God's word. And in his preaching, he fought on two fronts. One would be against the dead, formal, institutional intellectualism. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, yes, I do. He fought against that, which is dead. But he also fought against superficial, glib, entertainment-oriented, man-centered emotionalism. For Martin Lloyd-Jones, the only hope for revival was the historic preaching of God's Word in this day and age. Are you leaning in for that? See, when I talk about revival, that's the revival that grabs my heart. That's the revival that ultimately moves people. A preaching and teaching of the fullness of God's word and the apostles, and the, the, then they were devoted to that apostles' teaching. And they were devoted to fellowship. It says this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Okay, fellowship. Just as church, that word church, has more than anything lost its meaning nowadays in our culture, so has the word fellowship. I mean, if I would say, let's have some fellowship, what's the thing that would come to mind? Food. Right? Food. I mean, by the way, that's good. That's good to have Fellowship around food. Jesus did that with his disciples all the time. But is that the sense? Is that the depth of fellowship? Is it, no, food. What's fellowship? Food. Well, no. As a matter of fact, I want you to really take to heart this. Fellowship is essential in the Christian life. So how can fellowship be essential in the Christian life? Well, for that, you have to understand what fellowship actually means. Fellowship, and it's first found here in the book of Acts, just like last week church was first found in Matthew. Now fellowship is first found in the book of Acts. So what does it mean? It means having in common or commonality, commonness. So there are some things, right? When you share food, you share Maybe you give somebody a ride, something like that. You know, you know, I mean, you share your resources. But that's not the heart of Christian fellowship. See, the heart of Christian fellowship, and the most important part, is relationships. Think about it. 
the very first fellowship that man had with God was in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were in the garden with him, and there was full fellowship, wasn't there? And they would walk with him. You know, we're going to sing the song um, in the garden. And while I don't think it uh, applies necessarily to the Garden of Eden, uh, it still really captures the fellowship that we have with God. And he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me that I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. It's even calming just reading those verses, isn't it? It speaks of a joy, a bond, a relationship that is strong. You see, first and foremost is your faith and fellowship with God. It has to be fellowship with God first. So are you developing, when you have your devotions, are you really developing your fellowship with God, that relationship? Now, there's a number of scriptures that talk about the fellowship that we are to have with God. 1 John chapter 1, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then in 2 Corinthians, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. If you do not have fellowship with God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. You really can't have fellowship with anyone else at church in a Christian sense. Because if you don't have fellowship with God first and foremost, the church becomes just a social club. And I bet you've been to churches like that. Everybody's loving, everybody's nice, but there's no, you know, we, we, there's no depth there. So that's the first and foremost. And by the way, how do you have fellowship with God? What's the primary way? Prayer. Prayer and His Word. Prayer and His Word are the primary ways to have fellowship with Him. If you don't have prayer, and if you aren't in his word, how can you really have fellowship with God? So that's first and foremost. The called out ones, the church, are in fellowship with God through prayer. Prayer and his word. So, all right, how are we then to have fellowship with one another? Well, let's take a look at the example of how Jesus had fellowship with the disciples. Now, I'm going to put a lot of words on the screen here, and it only touches some of the ways that he had fellowship with them. So he encouraged them. He comforted them, by the way. He grieved when they were grieving. He was moved by compassion to feed them, to heal them, to pray for them. 
He told them first to seek the kingdom of God. He taught them to search the scriptures so that they would understand who God is. On occasions, he rebuked them when they were being childish or in a certain sin, caught up maybe in petty arguments. And when they repented, he forgave them and gave them grace and mercy. He was a servant to them. He washed their feet and he gave his life for them. That's the example that Jesus gave his disciples and thus us what it means to have fellowship with one another. So on one sense, it does mean rolling up our sleeves. If somebody cars, cars break down and they need a ride, we give them a ride, right? Somebody might need, uh, I'm, I'm, it, would, it was just this week, somebody needed money for airfare, helped out with airfare. We have food afterwards, right? We go to Desert Manna and also do boxes of food. I mean, those are all things that are part of fellowship. And yet, is that the depth of fellowship? See, we ought to pray with one another. And one of the best things for me each and every Sunday is before worship, uh, whoever is here, we gather in prayer. And we pray for this time of worship. That's fellowship. We encourage one another. We rejoice when there's joy. We cry when there's sadness. We offer encouragement. We keep reminding each other about the promises of God in Christ Jesus. That life wouldn't be easy. We remind each other of who Jesus is, that he is our rock and redeemer. And we can even remind each other that God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. Amen. As you can see, it's that type of fellowship that really binds us all together. And I want you to understand this. Just as true discipleship is costly, so is true fellowship. To follow Jesus, to say, no, no turning back, no turning back, means that you will follow him even if there is a cost. In fellowship, there is a cost to be able to lay down your life for another. You see, in marriages, marriages that endure go through trials and tribulations, don't they? And love is tested. And when love is tested, it becomes ever stronger. And it's the same way with Christian fellowship. It's not an easy task, is it? As Jim said, herding cats. But that is where we work through things and we are bound together by the love of Christ. That no matter the situation, we continue to work through things because that is the love, that is the fellowship that binds us together. You know, we're also going to be singing uh, another song during communion, Blessed Be the tithe, tithe That Binds. Now, I bet you know that song, but I'm going to guess you don't know the story behind it. So let me give you the story. 
1765, John Fawcett was called to be a pastor of a small congregation in Waynesgate, England. He labored diligently there for seven years, but his salary was extremely meager, and his wife, he and his wife could barely have the essentials that they needed for life. And though they were poor, the people compensated this by their faithfulness and warm fellowship. Then the pastor received a call at a much larger church in London, and after a lengthy consideration, he decided to accept that invitation. As his few possessions were being placed in a wagon for moving, many of his parishioners came to say goodbye, and once again they pleaded for him to reconsider. Touched by this great outpouring of love, he and his wife began to weep. Finally, Mrs. Fawcett exclaimed, Oh, John, I can't bear this. They need us so badly here. God has spoken to my heart too, he said. Tell them to unload the wagon. We cannot break these wonderful ties of fellowship. This experience inspired him to write the hymn, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred mind is like to that above. That's fellowship. And as I have been here, that type of fellowship has grown here. And it is joyful to behold. You and I are called to be God's church in a time such as this. With Jesus as our rock and our foundation. And what keeps the fire alive is the preaching, the teaching of his word, and the devotion to that, and to the fellowship that binds us together in that Christian love. So this week, consider this. Are you steadfast in your devotion to growing in and through God's word? Is there any zeal in growing in and through his word? That's one. What is your fellowship with Jesus? I mean, are you praying? Are you spending time in his word? Are you walking with him in the garden? Or is he in another garden and occasionally you yell out to him? And finally, it would be interesting for you to describe your fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Is it superficial? Or one that is close, that is close through costly love? Amen.